the joy and privilege that again is ours this evening to be able to come together like this is truly a bright spot in the week that is now beginning for us to consider that what better way might there be for us to begin a week than to have opportunity to assemble with those of precious faith as we and to offer worship and homage and obeisance to the great God of heaven. As is often the case, we have visitors with us and we're appreciative of your presence and hope that the opportunity will soon be yours to come back and be with us if, if that's the case. Our studies now for, I guess this will be the fourth Sunday evening, have been involving, in fact, the book of Second Samuel in the Old Testament. We remember that the Bible Bowl has selected that as the book to be studied, the book of 2 Samuel, and we will have been involved in a series of studies on that, on that book, and we will continue that this evening. In chapters 5 and 6, which is where we come this evening, we'll be prepared to look at a continuation of what we have seen already, and as it builds toward greater and more wonderful matters as it relates, of course, to the kingdom of Israel and the king that we know of as David. It might be well to rehearse just ever so briefly a bit of what we've seen in the first four chapters. By way of introduction, that will in fact set a point of discussion for us to begin this evening. We have seen, have we not, that Saul and Jonathan both lost their lives in the closing chapter of 1 Samuel. And that, of course, left a power void or vacuum that was soon to be filled with the very one whom the God of heaven had hand-selected and picked, none other than David. However, that did not happen overnight, for we immediately remember that Ishbosheth began to reign over the northern kingdom, having been placed there by Abner, a relation to Saul. Soon, however, we discover that a number of lives, in fact, were lost. First of all, Abner's life was taken by Joab, and also Ishbosheth's life was taken by two individuals who thought that they were doing David's service. These, whose names were Baana and Rechab, took Ishbosheth's life and thought that David would be pleased with their action. However, he was not. He, in fact, took their lives, executed them for having the audacity to take the life of the king. With that said, we notice that two then, the two main leaders of the northern kingdom of that given place of Israel were lost. In fact, we might appreciate that they were then in need of leadership and they would seek that in no other than the person known as David. But might we also quickly notice that God had been working on behalf of David and the house of David had become strong and continued to strengthen while the house of Saul had faded away. That, of course, reminds us perhaps at the outset that God is not slack concerning His promise. We noted that in passing in the Bible class this morning. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, Samuel had already observed and made note to Saul that due to his disobedience, the kingdom would be taken from him and given to another. Later, when Samuel, in fact, was conjured up, if you will, by that witch at Endor in 1 Samuel 28, the same message was again related that the kingdom was given to another whose name would be David. And so we now see that God's fruition and will had come to pass. Saul had lost the character of the kingdom to his sons. It was to be given unto David. As we close that study last Lord's Day, we notice that the house of Saul removed completely and that opened the stage for David in chapter 5. And it'll be that place that we'll begin our study this evening. Let's look at chapter 5 first, and then we'll be ready following that to look more interestingly at chapter 6. In 2 Samuel 5, we have a hallmark chapter that sets before us the thought now of what we typically remember about David. We think of him as king of Israel. 
in verse number 3 that Brother Eddie read in our hearing just a few moments earlier. It says, So all the elders of Israel came to the king to Hebron, and King David made a league with them in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. At this time, David had already been selected as the leader of Judah, that one tribe. Now with Ishbosheth and Abner both dead, even now the elders of the other tribes come to Hebron to beseech David to speak with him and to invite him to be the king, in fact, over all Israel. David, in that very verse, agreed to do so. And isn't it a fascinating thing to see that now here's the one whom God had chosen several years earlier, now reigning in the very position that God had handpicked him to reign. Is it not noted that David was a man after God's own heart? He had various qualities about him that set him apart in comparison to others of that day. We've already noted he had a respect for human life. He had a desire to, in fact, behave himself accordingly before the eyes of heaven. And others, it seemed, had very little interests like that in them. It is no wonder that David was so highly regarded by God at this time. In fact, so very special and chosen was he that he would be the standard by which kings following him would be judged and that they would be compared. It is to be noted that in verse number 4 and 5, some statistics about David's reign are given. First, he reigned seven and a half years over Judah in the city of Hebron, that very special place situated within the tribe of Judah. But then he reigned some 33 years as king in another place that would be chosen as his capital. And doesn't that race us to consider what would be that very special city that David would choose as capital? In verse number 5, it says, In Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem he reigned thirty and three years over all Israel and Judah. Though Jerusalem had been mentioned earlier in the Old Testament, from this point forward it would have the stature and greatness that you and I even today have come to recognize in that city. For example, why might David have chosen this as his capital? He was already reigning in Hebron. Wasn't Judah satisfactory? Wasn't that place of Hebron sufficient to be his capital even in the continuation of his reign? And the answer, very interesting, was no. What made Jerusalem a better choice? What made it a superior selection? Might we observe just a few facts about the city? First of all, as we've already noted, Hebron was situated within Judah. And no doubt, had he maintained his capital there, there would have been a sense of favoritism perceived on his part by those other tribes. For after all, one would find it best to have a capital city situated strategically so that all appreciated their contribution and that they were represented by the king. Isn't it true that in this land, Washington is somewhat centrally located north to south in our land? And that choice was done so to enact a degree of harmony among the various places in the original 13 colonies. David needed to choose a place that all could accept his rulership and kingship. Why did he choose Jerusalem? As noted on the screen, Jerusalem was inhabited this time by Jebusites. Those would be recognized as foreigners or pagans to the people of God. But it was a place that was very well located strategically, situated on a hill that would be easily defended. In fact, there was only one main access to Jerusalem whereby one would need to guard it ever so carefully. David saw that strategic place. 
it was not located directly in Judah. It was in the tribe of Benjamin with that selection. We notice in verse number 6 that initially this city was so well defended that the Jebusites who occupied it felt certain David could never take it from them. Might you notice the language with me? Except thou take away the blind and the lame, thou shalt not come in hither. The American Standard rendering as well as some other translational renderings state that, that their perception was that we, even if our city is maintained by and defended by only those that are lame and blind, David, you still would not be able to take it. It is so well defended that we need not be that strong to maintain an offense against you. However, we notice in verse 7, it says, Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. David did conquer and overwhelm it, and as such then chose that as his capital city. It would be the capital city of that Old Testament nation of Israel throughout the remainder of its existence. And interestingly, even once they're taken into captivity into Babylon, it would ultimately be to Jerusalem that they would return. For Nehemiah constructed the walls around it, remember, in rebuilding in the book of Nehemiah. It would certainly be fair to call to our attention that Jebus, that individual named in Judges 19.10, apparently was the one who originally in some form gave his name to that given location or place. Note Jebusites. And so as Jerusalem was herein mentioned, might we observe that perhaps another thing could be said. It has to do with what David uttered in verses 7 and 8. Given the nature of the city's well-defensed position, how did David's men gain access to the city? There is a hint in verse 8 that may well indicate this. Whosoever getteth up to the gutter and smiteth the Jebusites and the lame and the blind that are hated of David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. The word gutter suggests in the Hebrew the water channel or the water course. Jerusalem, as any other city would, has need of water for its citizenry. The water that Jerusalem obtained was from the Gihon Well, situated just basically outside the city, at least at that point in time. But notice that David encouraged his men, or at least some of them, to perhaps shimmy up the water chaff, the watering channel, and perhaps by that sneakery to gain access into the city. It'll be again later in the Old Testament in the days of Hezekiah that that water channel will again be mentioned. And in fact, even Hezekiah made plans such that that could no longer be an entrance with such a powerful way into the city by craft and by deception. With verse number 10 closed, David went on and become great, having chosen Jerusalem as his capital. There is in passing perhaps two more observations. One is in verse 7, the mention of Zion. Sometimes we sing, lovely, lovely Zion, appreciating that that name has come forth through the ages as a synonym for God's presence and the greatness of His position. Of course, once the temple was erected there under the leadership of Solomon, found in the book of 1 Kings, it is interesting that it would be that place that it was constructed on Mount Zion. That place, that hillside, situated just north and east of what the old city of Jerusalem was, Zion. And her loveliness became a synonym for God's presence and the citadel of His position. 
Sometimes today we, in a symbolic fashion, speak still of God's citadel and appreciate His presence in His house, the church. 1 Timothy 3, verse 15. Those thoughts maybe lead to that second comment. Verse number 9. David built round about from Milo and inward. That word Milo is an interesting word. It means in Hebrew filling, and perhaps it seems to relate to the terraces that David may have constructed. Because you see, in terms of land area, the city of Jerusalem on the hill position was in need of extended places for businesses and extended places in which houses and other places of residence could be built. Archaeologically and historically, it's well known that rock terraces were built, and of course those had to be maintained from time to time. And so it's no wonder that even under the reign of Solomon, it makes reference to the repairing of the millow. Maybe it's those terraces that were used on which houses were constructed that were foundational elements in those very physical structures. At any rate, as verse number 11 began, we can see that David gained assistance from Hiram, the king of Tyre. Hiram will be a good friend to David throughout much of his reign, in fact. And interestingly, Hiram, in fact, dispatched messengers together with various carpenters and masons, as well as various elements to be used for the construction of a palace or a house for David. That palace was, of course, constructed, and more will be said about it also in First, in first Kings. But might we observe, in verses 13 and 14, David had now resoundingly appreciated God's blessing to him, he occupied that place of the Lord's anointed, the king of Israel. In that position, he took more wives and concubines. In fact, a number of his children are now listed, more so than those that he had pre previously born to him in, in Hebron. In fact, isn't it interesting here that Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon are mentioned in verse number 14. Those, of course, were born to him from, by way of Bathsheba. And then several more sons born in verses 15 and 16 to him. I have tallied by consideration a few of them that are therein stated. Notice that 13 more of them are that which is specifically listed in the Chronicles. The book of 2 Samuel lists only 11 of them. It would seem from the Chronicles that two of the children were in fact such that they died very, very early in life or perhaps were even, uh, even in infancy. That being said, it is to be noted that as we close verse 16, we might make a few remarks about the victory that David had been able to experience. How often are you and I reminded that you and I can have victory too by holding on closely to the hand of God? David had done that. Though opportunity had been his to, in fact, take the life of others before him, he chose the path of God. If God be for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.31 the victory that David had experienced was such that he was able to maintain his humility even now. Many of the Psalms written by him exalted the aspect of humility. Did he not say in Psalm 131 verse 1 that I will not deal in those matters too high for me? He at this point in his life was very willing to let God take the lead. Back in chapter 2, he had beseeched God in prayer as to whether or not he should go up to Judah, and God answered him and said, Go unto Hebron. We will now discover that this same idea in verses 17 and following will be descriptive of David again. 
the Philistines are still that annoying enemy that resided just to the west and south of where David reigned. This enemy known as the Philistines were such that they came in verse 18 and spread themselves in the valley of Rephaim. What did David do in verse 19? Did he consult his own military advisors and proceed to engage in battle? He did not. Notice with me in verse 19, he inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up to the Philistines? Wilt thou deliver them into mine hand? Isn't that a marvelous reflection on the life of David at this point? Desirous of following the way of God? Desirous of letting God lead him into what he ought to do? And oughtn't it not be that way for my life and yours today? When you and I have major decisions to make, may we do it in the avenue of prayer and to let God provide us with security and comfort and guidance and direction. God has promised in James 5 verse 16, the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. If we believe that, we must understand the fact that he will hear and that he will provide answer to those things we ask of him. Jesus himself uttered in Matthew 7, beginning in verse 7, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and the door shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh, receiveth. And he that seeketh, findeth. And to him that knocketh, the door shall be opened. Friend, isn't that a tremendous promise? The Lord didn't say the door might be opened. The answer could be given. He said to him that asketh, it will be revealed, and it will be provided. It is no wonder that we should ever be those individuals described as people of prayer. David seems to have been a person like that. And how many of the Psalms, penned by his own hand, bring us to recognize that he would fall prostrate before the God of heaven, beseeching his aid in times of trouble, but also honoring him when times were good. Realizing, even in Psalm 3, verses 4 and 5, I laid me down and slept because the Lord sustained me. Even a good night's sleep, David appreciated to be a blessing from the God of heaven and appreciated all the goodness that the hand of God had made available to him. That's an interesting statement about verses 18 through 21. That is, David had victory over the Philistines. God maintained his promise. God told him to go up, and that he did. And in verse 22, we notice that the Philistines made another attempt to come upon David. David again was told by God what to do, and one more time victory was his. Or maybe we should say victory was God's. You and I today, when we face those difficult matters in life, may we not forget 1 Corinthians 10, 13, in which we appreciate the goodness of God toward us in realizing that there is no temptation taking you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able. But will with the temptation also provide a way of escape that ye may be able to bear it. It is a certainty that God will not allow anything to be heaped upon us that we physically or emotionally are unable to tackle and are unable to deal with. Perhaps we see in the life of David a hallmark statement of that very idea. As chapter number 5 draws to its conclusion, we have seen the great victory that was to be experienced and had by David And doesn't it prepare us for what shall come then in chapter 6? As we turn to that chapter, a little bit shorter in terms of its number of verses, let's also make some comments about it if we might. The first element to be noted in the chapter is a monumental one in many ways. 
In fact, let us pause to say something about Jerusalem. We have hinted before that David selected that to be his capital. Once he selected that as the governmental center of Israel, something else was to be interestingly observed. And it was this. It was David's desire to make Jerusalem not only the governmental center, but also the religious and spiritual center of the empire. Might we remember that God had commanded the construction of a tabernacle in the days of Moses, and that, together with the various furnishings within it, formulated and positioned where the centerpiece of religion was in the empire. David desired to bring that Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Now, there was an issue, of course, to be engaged in prior to, to that occurrence. David had to construct a tabernacle or tent such that it could be housed, and that he did. It was only left then to actually bring physically that Ark of the Covenant from its current position to the city of Jerusalem. Isn't it interesting to think of the history surrounding Jerusalem? Today, it is the central city of three major world religions. First, Christianity holds high the nature of Jerusalem. For in that place, is that not where in fact Jesus walked about upon this earth? Is it not just outside its walls where he was put to death? Certainly it is. And so Christianity holds high the city of Jerusalem. But notice Judaism does. It is still to those who hold to the Old Testament, it is still the centerpiece of what they do. Sometimes on TV we see the Wailing Wall and these Jews that will bow before it and pay great homage to what took place on that occasion. But there's a third religion, Islam. The Muslim religion also holds Jerusalem exceedingly important for in one of the journeys that Muhammad made. He, in fact, went to Jerusalem and there they often hold today still a great deal of importance to that very city. In fact, some of the major places in Jerusalem now, there are Muslim mosques that are situated on what once were Christian holy places, if you will. And so today there's great fighting in many ways concerning the city of Jerusalem. But might we return here and see the final piece to the puzzle that made it such an important place. David, in his desire to bring the Ark of the Covenant to this, to this city, ran into a degree of difficulty. The Ark of the Covenant had been captured by the Philistines in 1 Samuel chapter 4. And it had remained for a short time in Philistine territory. However, the Philistines were plagued when it was in their land. You see, they did not honor it. They did not cherish it for the great peace of holding that it was, for therein was the presence of God with His people. Exodus 25, beginning in verse 10. However, they sent it back to the land of Israel, and once they had sent it back, it remained in the house of Abinadab from that time until David desired to bring it to the city of Jerusalem. On that occasion, this was the means by which they chose to move it. They took a cart and set this Ark of the Covenant on it, and Abinadab's two sons, whose names were Uzzah and Ahio, were thus conveying it. It would seem that Ahio was the one primarily driving Whereas the one walking nearby, the cart itself, was none other than Uzzah. The time came that the oxen stumbled when they had reached the threshing floor of Nacon. And upon reaching that place, Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark. No doubt considering that it might be injured or damaged in some fashion. And so it was that when he steadied the ark, God was displeased. 
In fact, God became rather wroth and angry at him. Note especially verse number 7. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. Uzzah's life was taken from him because he touched the ark of the covenant. He had reached out his hand to steady it, and in so doing, God's wrath was kindled against him, and Uzzah's life was taken. As we notice the aftermath of that event, David was so fearful of what had taken place that he left the Ark of the Covenant there in the house of Obed-Edom because he was fearful to proceed on to bring it to Jerusalem. In fact, it would remain there, as you can see in verse 11, for a full three months before David again would appreciate the fact of how properly it ought to be brought to the place in Jerusalem. In what way was God's anger kindled against Uzzah? And what was the reason for it? Did the man not respond in sincerity? Was he not simply trying to preserve a very special piece of furniture that God had commanded to be structured at first? What was Uzzah's sin? What had Uzzah done that so enraged the circumstance that God took his life? We later, in fact, by reading in the Chronicles, will find more specifically and carefully the scene of events as they unfolded, and furthermore, what the mistake was. It consisted of two things. First, might we observe in what way was this Ark of the Covenant being conveyed from its current place at the house of Abinadab to the city of Jerusalem? It was riding on a cart. Secondly, who was it that was involved in the carrying and touching of it? God had commanded in the books of Leviticus and Numbers that the Ark of the Covenant was to be conveyed by the Levites and especially the house of Kohath. Only the Kohathites were allowed by God in His decree to touch and to convey it. Furthermore, it was structured with staves proceeding through golden rings on its four corners, and it was by those staves that it was to be moved. And this, there were two errors. Uzzah was not a Levite. Thus, he was not authorized by God to touch that ark. Could it not be noted then that both those problems lead us to see a dramatic lesson that all humanity should seriously ponder? God expects that you and I do what he says to do the way he says to do it for the reason he says to do it. You and I are not at liberty to, to presumptuously alter or change simply because it seems the right thing to us. To no doubt to Uzzah, it seemed a natural matter to steady that ark by touching it. He didn't want it to be damaged. However, it didn't matter what he thought. God had said only the Levites and only the Kohathites are to touch it. Today, those who thus attempt to alter worship because it sounds good to me, friend, it doesn't matter how it sounds to you and me. What God has decreed and what he has affirmed must be only that which you and I do or those that meddle with the plan of salvation, or with the government of the church. What God has ordained is what only He respects. You and I must not tamper with what He has revealed. In 1 Corinthians 4 verse 6 we read that no man may go beyond what is written. In 2 John verses 9 through 11 that no man may transgress and go beyond that which is the doctrine of Christ. Those matters are fundamentally important. And we even see in the life of David in the long ago issues that he finally learned. 
In 1 Chronicles 15, verses 1 to 15, even David there admitted, we made an error by the way we carried it and by failing to allow the Levites to carry it. Apparently it took three months for David to have enough courage and bravery again to strive to bring that ark to the city of Jerusalem. But when it was done properly, it made a safe journey and was brought to that tabernacle, that tent that David had structured there in the city of Jerusalem. The interesting feature seen throughout all the Bible helps us see the importance of humble and simple obedience to God's commandments. Thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him, so did he, Genesis 6.22. Thus did Moses according to all that God commanded him, so did he, Exodus 40, verse 16. That simple obedience helps us see the importance of what the Lord declared, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, John 14.15. It is thus as simple as this, if we don't keep the Lord's commandments, replacing what he has decreed with what we prefer, we don't love him. We have chosen to replace the doctrines of God with the commandments of men. And for that, that leads to worship that's vain, Matthew 15, 9. It leads to actions and things that do not draw individuals closer to the will of God. It only seeks to drive them from it. As matters like that are presented in chapter number 6, we notice then that as Uzzah's life was taken, in verses 12 and following, we notice that as the ark was safely conveyed then to that place of Jerusalem, it leads us to see the celebration that took place at this matter of combining the governmental center as well as the religious center of the city. And from that point onward, it was desired to maintain the unity of those two things. Perhaps in verses 14 and 15, we might notice the simplicity that describes the celebration that took place. David and all the house of Israel, verse 15, brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. There was great jubilation and great victory to be seen by bringing the ark to the place. Is there not great victory for you and me today when you and I simply do what the Lord has decreed? Paul affirmed in 2 Corinthians 2.14 that the victory, the triumph, is always to be had in Christ. That still is true, isn't it? You and I, in fact, can't be victorious in any other way. We can't be triumphant over Satan, over self, over sin in any other way. It's only in Christ. For our sufficiency is not of ourselves, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 5. Perhaps it could be noted in verse 16. A statement made about Michael, one of David's wives. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David... Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. We shortly learn the reason that she despised him. David was not behaving himself in her mind as a king ought to behave. He is mighty and powerful, and he shouldn't behave as a common person. He is above them, at least Michael thought. Remember, she came from a lineage of royalty. Saul was her father. She was accustomed to a king behaving himself in a distance from his people. With David mingling with the people, celebrating with them, he humbled himself far beneath what she thought was proper. And in fact, she challenged David on that, beginning in verse number 17. In fact, the text reads, And as they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had pitched for it, and David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. 
And as soon as David had made an end of offering, burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he dealt among all the people, even among the whole multitude of Israel, as well as to the women as men, to every one a cake of bread and a good piece of flesh and a flagon of wine. So all the people departed every one to his house. Three things David then gave to every Israelite therein gathered. First, a piece of bread. He made certain that they had a veil on that occasion of something to aid in the celebration. He gave them food and it included bread. It included a piece of meat and it included a cake of raisins. That's the better rendering of that latter matter that you and I had just listed. But as those things are made, David returned to bless his household as well, verse number 20. Perhaps it would be here fair to note. Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, who uncovered himself today in the eyes of the handmaids of his servants, as one of the vain fellows shamelessly uncovered himself. That reading may seem to imply that David behaved himself in an uncomely way, when in fact the language in the original Hebrew doesn't necessarily suggest that. In fact, her charge to David, if I may paraphrase, was this. Why have you so humbly behaved yourself like all the other citizens of the kingdom? You are better than they. You are nobler and higher than they. In fact, David responded by noting in verse 21, It was before the Lord which chose me before thy father and before all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord. And David went on to say in verse 22, I will be yet more humble. David was an humble king. The word vile really does injustice to the original Hebrew word. David just desired to conduct himself in an humble fashion before the members of the empire and to conduct himself in a way that they understood he was one of them. He was merely blessed to be in position of king. You and I today should be thankful for leaders who can behave like that, who do not lift themselves up in such an exalted fashion that they wish to have no identification with those over whom they rule, but rather they understand that they are merely blessed in the position they are and that they too are human and they have the same needs and desires of life as everyone else. That kind of ruler is often the best. The one who can so conduct the affairs of the empire to be best for the general citizenry that make it up. And so it is that in verse 23, Michael the daughter of Saul had no child until the day of her death we see that God brought a punishment upon her for her choosing to challenge David. He, in fact, was in the right to behave himself humbly as a member of the empire. And so the sentence upon her that she was barren until the day of her death. Michael never bore David any children. The thought then as we use to close that chapter helps us recollect that David had now been centered as the king. He had now been able to bring together not only the governmental center but the religious center of the empire. And Jerusalem from this time forward in the Old Testament will be the central city in which all Israel will look to find the blessing of God. Where was it in fact that Solomon built the temple? On Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Where was it that when Ezra returned from the captivity that he reinstated the proper worship? It was in Jerusalem. In the New Testament era, where did Herod build for 46 years the temple? It was in Jerusalem. 
that was the very place that would be, again, known as the city of David. That place in which it was understood the greatness and glory of God working in His people. And when our Savior trod in the flesh this earth, where was it He marched towards starting in Luke 9 verse 51? That very place where He was put to death. It was at Jerusalem. The Old Testament had prophesied that it would be at Jerusalem that the ultimate kingdom of God would be established. Isaiah had said so in Isaiah 2 verses 2 through 4 that it would be at that city that the law would go forth. And when we arrive at Acts chapter 2, where was the church? Where was it established? In Jerusalem. All these things make Jerusalem a centerpiece of Old Testament history as well as New Testament centrality. But might we realize today, you and I don't live under the Old Testament regime any longer. That law was nailed to the cross. Now you and I need not go to Jerusalem three times in the year and offer sacrifices and observe those celebrations and feasts. You and I can be Christians in Putnam County, Tennessee, Jackson County, Tennessee, by appreciating the church in its existence wherever in faith and in truth that church exists. We live under a better covenant, Hebrews 8, verse 6. It is built upon better promises, and it has the grandeur and greatness of a hope of eternity in heaven. As we conclude the lesson tonight, 2 Samuel chapters 5 and 6, might we summarize just a few of the things we've observed by way of these comments. David had chosen Jerusalem as his capital city. And with that choice, a very wise one indeed, we saw then the need to make that a great city, and David desired to bring also the religious center to the same place. As he chose to do so, we notice the difficulties surrounding the life of Uzzah and his disobedience to God's command. That helped to teach us the importance of humble obedience to all that God says. As we arrived at the latter part, might we notice the rebuke again that Michael had asserted and that the matters concerning joy and emotion and excitement in what God has revealed could well be characteristic of us. Do we look forward with joy to those times of assembly, for example? It shouldn't be seen as a drudgery. It shouldn't be seen as merely a chore to be checked off a couple of times a week. This should be the highlight of the week, to come together and to praise the very God that made us and to look forward one day to be with Him forever. Tonight, are you a Christian? Are you one that's had your sins washed away by the blood of the Lamb? Revelation 7, verse 14. The Lord is coming back some sweet day, and when He does, every eye shall see Him. Revelation 1, verse 5. When you look at Him on that day, will it be a happy day for you, or will it be a day of the most amazing regret you will ever know? Because you know you won't be ready. Make sure you're ready tonight. Make sure when you pillow your head this evening that you're prepared to enter into eternity at any moment, whenever that be. So David set before us a prime example of simple obedience. To become a Christian, you must obey as well. Jesus said you must believe that He's the Son of God. John 8, verse 24. You must repent of your sins. Acts 2, verse 38. You must confess audibly His presence and His being as the Son of God. Romans 10, verse 10. And you must be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. To do all those things means you simply have done that which the Lord requests and demands of you. If you do that, He, as His part of that bargain, will add you to the church. If you thus have never been added to that church, perhaps you're still in need 
of a public confession and baptism. We could help you with that tonight. If you become a Christian, but you have not maintained faithfulness to the cause of God, come back to that first love. Come back to what you originally started in faith. If we could help you do that, we'd pray with you. We'd pray for you, just as Simon was done for him in Acts the 8th chapter. If we could help you in either of those ways tonight, would you not let it be known, even now, while together we stand and while we sing?